This is Chthonia, the world of the dark feminine. Hello and welcome to Chthonia, the podcast dealing with the dark feminine. I'm your host, Breach Burke, and this this week what we're going to talk about is we're going to go to the Hawaiian Islands. We're going to take um, a look at a Polynesian goddess called Pele. Uh, Pele is a goddess associated with volcanoes, particularly with the volcano called, um, let me see if I can say this right, <clears throat> Kilauea, Kilauea. Kilauea. There we go. It's uh, want to make I want to make trying to make sure that I pronounce things as properly as I can. Kilauea. Okay, and she is also considered to be a creator goddess or creatrix of the Hawaiian Islands themselves. Now, as we're going to see with Pele, she is a, she's clearly clearly a fire goddess, and there are many attributes of her that she has in common with other fire goddesses, and and we can look at the meaning, these sort of elemental meanings and how they end up translating into our human psychology. So the way that I am going to construct this particular episode is I'm going to talk first about who Pele is and her attributes. I'm going to give a few of the main stories associated with her, and then we're going to talk about different elements of her uh, of her attributes, of her characteristics, and, and the kinds of themes that we see in the stories and what, you know, some possible meanings might be for those. And I'll probably finish up by talking about some urban legends that are associated with her, because people who live um, in, you know, in Hawaii today, especially on the um, island where the volcano is, they, they're, they're, there's definitely still a sense that Pele is there, that Pele um, needs to be treated with respect, um, and that she's also very, still very active in the lives of the people there. So, um, so Pele has not, uh, in spite of, in spite of attempts by missionaries in the 19th century and so forth, has not gone away as a deity in the Hawaiian Islands. Okay, so let's start at the beginning. So who is Pele? Okay, so she's a goddess who was said to be born in Tahiti and exiled to Hawaii by her father for her vicious temper. She island hopped her way across the Pacific, it said, building fires everywhere she went. Now think about this. She's a fire goddess, so basically everywhere she lands, she's setting fire. Okay. Meanwhile, her her um, her older sister uh, Namaka, the sea goddess, was in hot pursuit, wanting to extinguish not only her fires but Pele herself. And um, again, from a purely natural environment element uh, elemental point of view, you can see this idea of a of the, if you think about the islands and about the ocean and the way the lava flows are and the way that they, um, you know, that they um, they sizzle when they encounter each other and then they, you know, form into these hard formations, these hard lava formations. You know, you can kind of see this idea of you know the battle between the fire and the water here. Uh, she finally catches up to Pele. This is Namaka, and the two sisters battled to the death with Namaka coming out on top. As she died, the spirit of Pele left her body and moved into the Helemaumau crater on Kilauea. Legend has it that the lava flows from the volcano, that, that, that flows from the volcano is an extension of her body. Okay, so Pele is the actual, the body of Pele is the lava flow. 
says, Pele can also shapeshift and appear as a beautiful young woman, an old woman, or a white dog. And we're going to talk about that a little later on. Okay, she's often referred to as Madame Pele or Tutu Pele as a sign of respect. Um, and she's, okay, so she is, um, in different stories, it says she's uh, born from the female spirit called uh, Haumea. The spirit's important when talking about Hawaii's gods as she is descended from Papa, or Earth Mother, and Wakea, Sky Father, both descendants of supreme beings. Pele is also known as she who shapes the sacred land, known to be said in ancient Hawaiian chants. And again, that makes sense if you realize that the Hawaiian islands are volcanic, and that it's the, um, and, you know, um, Kilauea is, is still an active volcano. So, you, you know, so there is, when you have these eruptions, it does change the uh, shape and form of the Hawaiian islands. So that makes a tremendous amount of a very practical sense in, in a factual sense as well as a mythological one. Um, <clears throat> Kilauea is, current, is a currently active volcano located on the island of Hawaii, and it's still extensively studied. Many Hawaiians believe um, Kileuea is to be inhabited by a family of fire gods, one of the sisters being Pele, who is believed to govern Kilauea and is responsible for controlling its lava flows. There are several traditional legends associated with Pele in Hawaiian mythology. In addition to being recognized as a goddess of volcanoes, she's known for her power, passion, jealousy, and capriciousness. Uh, she has numerous siblings, whose names I'm not going to try to read right now, um, and numerous sisters named Hiiaka, uh, the most famous being, let's see if I can say this right, Hiiaka Aka Poliopele, which is Hiiaka in the bosom of Pele, and I'll tell her story in a minute. And all of these are considered to be offspring of Haumea. Pele's siblings include deities of various types of wind, rain, fire, ocean waveforms, or cloud forms. Um, okay. She does share features similar to other malignant deities inhabiting volcanoes, as in the case of the devil Guayota um, of Guanache Mountains in the Canary Islands, living on the volcano Tide, and was considered by the aboriginal, uh, not even sure I'm saying their name right, um, Guanches as responsible for the eruptions of the volcano. Um, legend said that um, she journeyed herself on a canoe from the island of Tahiti to Hawaii, and this is in one version where she's, the, where she's actually exiled. When going through her journeys, and she tried to create these fires, again, we have the story of her sister. Um, we had talked about how now the, her body isn't, you know, her spirit has entered the volcano, and it said her body is the lava and the steam that comes from a volcano, okay, and that she can also change forms. Uh, she's also regarded as the goddess of the hula, which is the um, ritual, sacred ritual dance of the Hawaiian islands. Hula is often, visitors to Hawaii may experience hula as a kind of an entertainment, but it also has, there's other forms of hula that are of, uh, very sacred purposes. And the hula dances are performed, <coughs> unsurprisingly, excuse me, I'm <coughs> unsurprisingly as, um, as uh, expressing old sacred stories and rites, um, you know, stories of gods, stories of uh, events, certain seasonal or, or natural events, um, and things that were, are sacred and important <coughs> to Hawaiian religion. Um, and so, you know, so it's not, it, so hula is not merely done for entertainment. It's just very similar to Indian dance. 
in the sense that there are, you know, specific hand gestures and body movements that are meant to, uh, that meant that are meant to tell a story. They're not just, you know, to, I don't know, to show, to look cool or to show a movement. I mean, they're, every, every movement, uh, is part of a story. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a little bit. Okay. <clears throat> so here's, um, a couple more, there's a couple more stories here about Pele that I'm going to tell you. Now, we mentioned the story of her, obviously, of her banishment because of her bad temper, and also I should note her jealousy. These are two characteristics of Pele to bear in mind. Uh, now, her sister Namaka is afraid that Pele's moving from island to island, that her, it calls it her ambition, that it would smother the homeland, and, and of course, you know, <clears throat> with, with all these fires burning, that it was going to end up destroying the land. And, um, let me, uh, this here, um, that she would, uh, so she ends up, so, so she ends up driving Pele away. It's not so much that she's necessarily trying to kill her, at least not at first, but there's this idea that she is exiled, Pele is exiled or banished, and that's another idea to keep in mind. So, um, um, let's see, you know, let's see if I say this correctly. Kamahuili, I think is the way you say this, drives Pele south in a canoe called Hanua Iakea, uh, with her younger sister, Hiiaka, and with her brothers, uh, Kamahuali, uh, Kanemilohai, um, Kaneapua, and, and they arrive at the islets just above Hawaii. <clears throat> there, Kanemilohai Kane is left on Mokupapapa, uh, just a reef, to build it up in fitness for human residence. On Nihoa, 800 feet above the ocean, uh, Pele leaves um, Kanemilohai, Kanapua after her visit uh, to Lahua and crowning a wreath of Kaunoa. Pele feels sorry for her younger brother and picks him up again. Pele uses the divining rod Peoa to pick a new home. Okay. A group of um, <clears throat> chants tells of a pursuit by Nam uh, Namaka and Pele is torn apart. Her bones, um, Kaiwio Pele, form a hill on Kahikikinui while her spirit escaped to the island of Hawaii. Okay. So this is another version of the story. Um, and in, in, and here's yet another. It says that she comes from a land said to be close to the clouds with her parents, um, uh, Kanehoalani and Kahinali'i, and her brothers, who I've mentioned already. Um, and she has a husband, apparently, here now in this version, called uh, uh, Wahialoa. And with him, she has a daughter, uh, Laka, and a son, Menehune. So... <clears throat> I really hope I'm saying all of these correctly. Um, Pele Kuma Honua entices her husband, and Pele uh, travels in search of him. And says the sea pours from over her head over the land of Kanaloa. He says perhaps it's now the island known as Kahoalawe. And her brothers will say, Oh, the sea, the great sea, forth bursts the great sea. Behold, it bursts on Kanaloa. The sea floods the land, then recedes. The flooding is called Kai Kahinali, as Pele's connection to the sea was passed down from her mother, um, Kahinali. Okay, so that that's a little bit of a confusing story as I'm reading it. It's just the idea that um, Pele, while she's on her travels, um, you know, uh, you know, it, it, uh, presumably this looks like she's searching for her husband in this particular version. And as she, as she passes this one particular island, the water comes pouring over her head in a flood uh, onto this particular island. 
So we have a volcano goddess from whom water is, is spewing forth. And that, that actually may be in reference to a literal natural event, um, the kinds of um, a kind of water spouting perhaps that might take place near a volcano or in connection with a volcanic eruption, a kind of flood that may, may occur, um, like a tidal waves and such that may occur in, in concert with that. So this may, be, this may be actually sort of a description of an event that's like that. Okay, um, got a couple more stories here that I'm going to tell you. Um, okay, so there's the other, another story is of her rivalry with the Hawaiian goddess of snow, Poliahu, um, and her sister, Lilinoe, who is a goddess of fine rain, um, Waiau, the goddess of Lake Waiau, and Kahupokane, um, a kappa maker whose kappa making activities create thunder, rain, and lightning. Um, and all except um, Kahupokane reside on Mauna Kea. Mauna Kea, my gosh, I, know, I don't even know what I'm saying right. I know, I know of the island, but I don't know if I'm saying the name right. Um, okay, so in this myth, um, Poliahu would come with her friends to attend sled races down the grassy hills south of Hamakua. Pele came disguised as a beautiful stranger, and was greeted by Poliahu. However, Pele became jealously enraged at the goddess of Manukei. She opened the caverns of Manukei and threw fire from them towards Poliahu, with the snow goddess fleeing toward the summit. Poliahu was finally able to grab her now-burning snow mantle and throw it over the mountain. Earthquakes shook the island as the snow mantle unfolded until it reached the fire fountains, chilling and hardening the lava. The rivers of lava were driven back to Mauna Loa, um, and Kila Uahe. Later battles also led to the defeat of Pele and confirmed the supremacy of the snow goddesses in the northern portion of the island and Pele in the southern portion. Again, we see this sort of elemental battle between the, the cool, either the watery, um, watery or cold forces, um, forces having to do with water, because obviously snow and ice are, you know, solidified water. Uh, in some form, uh, against the the uh, formative forces of fire. Okay, so we have this. So this theme we're seeing emerge in all of these stories of Pele is that they are um, they are they are purely elemental. They are fire and water of some form battling with each other, um, and there being a, a either a a jealousy or a rivalry, or a need to the one to stamp out the ambition of the other. Okay. Um, okay, now the story of Hiiaka, who is the sister. Um, in this particular story, again, this has to do with Pele's banishment. Her mother gives her an egg to take care of, and it hatches into a baby girl who Pele names Hiiaka Ika Polio Pele, which is Hiiaka in the bosom of Pele, or Hiiaka for short. She is her favorite sister and encouraged her to befriend the people of Puna. However, when Hiiaka becomes best friends with a girl named Hopo, Pele becomes jealous of their friendship. <clears throat> Pele saw Lo Lohiao, um, a, a chief of um, Kauai, in a dream and sends Hiiaka to bring him to her in 40 days or else she would punish them. Now this is interesting because I feel like there's a lot of detail missing here. My sense is that Pele um, is either in love with or attracted to um, Lohiao in, in some fashion. When Hiiaka arrives there, 
Loiyahu's dead, but she calls upon the power of the sorcery goddess Uli to revive him. As Hiiaka is on the journey, Pele grows impatient and sends a lava flow to Hopo's home before the 40 days were up. When Hiiaka returned to Hawaii with Lohiahu, she saw Hopo, Hopo covered in stone and knew Pele was behind this. Um, so, yeah, Hiiaka returns, and of course her friend has now been destroyed, turned to stone. And so we see that this is a ruse of Pele's to... Um, <clears throat> to get rid of the friend that she's jealous of. Um, because she wants that relationship for herself, which is quite interesting. Uh, Hi'iaka spitefully embraced Lohiahu in Pele's view, which further angered her, and she covered Lohiahu with lava as well. The sisters saw that their anger led to the two people who meant the most of them being dead. So Pele apologetically brought Lohiahu back to life and let him decide who he would choose. Unfortunately for Pele, Lohiahu ended up choosing... Hi'iaka, but she but she gave them her blessing regardless. Okay. So in here, I almost feel like with Pele, just as in a side note here, is that she has almost an attribute of Shiva, uh, the Hindu god, in that Shiva um, has terrible destructive anger, but uh, can can sort of turn on a dime. He can, uh, um, <clears throat> just as he has become destructive and angry, can also become very merciful. So you, you see this element of her as well. This, the, there's like an impulsiveness there. We see impatience, impulsiveness, and jealousy in this story. Okay, then now there's another version of this same myth in which Pele hears the beating drums and chanting coming from Kauai while she's sleeping and travels there in spirit form. She disguises herself as a beautiful young woman and meets Lohiahu in this way. After three days of making love together, Pele goes back to Hawaii and Lohiahu dies from a broken heart. Okay, so this is another version um, and that may also be representative of the kind of passion that Pele represents. Uh, you know, the, if you think about the fire of lovemaking, for example, that it's something that, that comes and it's extremely intense and ecstatic in the moment, but then it can cool off and disappear very, very quickly, um, leaving somebody brokenhearted. So, um, so these are the, these are the different tales that, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, that we see associated with with Pele. Um, so let's, let's talk about these particular stories and what is, uh, what, what they, what, what we can, if we think about them in terms of myth or in the psychoanalysis of myth, what, what do they actually say? Well, first let's, let's look at the idea of Pele as the volcano goddess. Okay. Now volcanoes are, you know, they're, they're eruptions, they're, they're openings in the earth. They're openings from which, um, <clears throat> the fires that are, presumed to be in the center of the earth, uh, that this, this lava from the mantle region of um, subterranean earth, that they rise up, that it rises up as fire, and these fires, you know, are what create mountains. They're, um, and in the case of these, these particular chains of islands, they can actually form entire islands and land masses. Um, not everything is volcanic, but um, some regions of the world, particularly in the South Pacific, um, have a lot of volcanic activity. <clears throat> okay, so for Hawaiians, obviously, Pele is an extremely important goddess because she is, because she has to do with the, um, you know, because, because the Hawaiian islands are volcanic. They're formed from volcanic, you know, ash and, and, and lava and uh, those kinds of formations. So obviously she is considered to be a creator goddess um, because she is, is like that. 
Um, <clears throat> I'm watching this woman uh, in a school bus, by the way, trying to back down my uh, street, which is extremely narrow. I have no idea what she's doing down here. Anyway, that's an aside. Um, <clears throat> and in case you hear the beeping in the background, that's what that is. Okay, so um, now when I think of volcanoes, the first deities that jump to my mind, again, having more of a, a classical association, are deities like Vulcan or Hephaestus, who are essentially, there's some slight differences, but they're essentially the same deity in Greece and Rome. And when we see deities like Hephaestus and Vulcan, they're, they are craftsmiths. They're blacksmiths. They usually make weapons, okay? And this, of course, may have to do with the kind of iron deposits and so forth that can come out of, um, that come out of volcanoes. Uh, there's these these you know eruptions that occur and and you know and the kinds of you know ores and minerals that will come out of these these kind of flows. So, but nonetheless, when you look at that, you see Hephaestus um, and Vulcan both as having a creative element. They're a masculine creative element. Okay, um, I'm reminded that Hephaestus is the one who creates uh, Pandora, the mortal woman used to entice um, Epimetheus when. Um, when Zeus is looking to get revenge on mortals for, uh, you know, for having fire again. Zeus has a lot against morals, uh, mortals in these things, and a lot of it has to do with his battles with Prometheus, who tends to be a um, defender and kind of benefactor of mortals through his cleverness. Prometheus is like the, the original Hermaeus. He's, um, he's extremely crafty, and <clears throat> he has... Um, um, he has managed to deceive Zeus on a number of occasions, so Zeus does not like him and takes out his anger on mortals. Um, but uh, Hephaestus is the one who creates Pandora, <clears throat> and then of course she's given all kinds of attributes by the other gods. Um, but you know, because she is this perfectly crafted being, um, she's able to entice Epimetheus, who, unlike his brother, is is not very bright. But not to sidetrack too much into that story, but to point out the creative element, you know, the, the idea of these um, fiery gods being uh, creators, being, I, I would still say in Greece and Rome, primarily of weaponry and things like that. Uh, the Cyclops, um, Hephaestus, and, the, and, and Vulcan, they all tend to be associated with those qualities of fire that have to do with smithing. Uh, you see this in Ireland, too, with fire goddesses like Bridget or Breach, where, um, you know, she's also associated with, with craft smithing, because that is that is one of the um, productive uses of fire. Fire is one of those things that can be um, that can be helpful or it can be destructive. I mean, when you're cold, you build a fire to warm yourself, right? Or that's the the uh, basis behind, in some fashion, the heating that we heating systems that we have, uh, and also to cook things. If you have raw foods, you know you can cook them and cook the bacteria and such out of them through using fire. Again, in some form, <clears throat> fire or heat. And uh, the way that this was practically used was to use, you know, uh, the knowledge of blacksmithing, <clears throat> almost a kind of magic, to, um, to be creative, to make things. We also see Ta in the ancient Egyptian. All these, these, uh, these smithing gods, these gods that, that build things, that, um, that are craftsmen. So you have, <clears throat> so in this case, you have a female goddess who is the goddess of the volcano. And rather than rather than looking at her being formative in a kind of blacksmith kind of a way we see it's literally um her body and her spirit that overrun everything um you know based on her caprice you know caprices because you know it, it, it seems to be when she suddenly flares with jealousy or um 
when she's angry about something or uh, trying to lay claim, you know, she can just all of a sudden erupt. And that, that again, may have to do with the um, unpredictable nature of volcanic eruptions. Um, obviously, in the modern days, we're a little better at predicting um, when volcanoes, you know, when volcanoes are monitored, especially active, you know, the active volcanoes are monitored, you can find, you can get a good idea of um, if there's going to be a time frame in which they're probably going to erupt. But of course, you know, they might, they wouldn't have had such a system for that um, early on, at least not as far as we know. So therefore, the, the, the volcanic is also the impulsive. Now, if we think about some of the goddesses we've talked about, or some of the Orishas or voodoo spirits that we've talked about, the Loa, um, in 2021, um, like Maman Brigitte, for example. Again, there's that association with heat and fire and, um, <clears throat> you, know, like, you know, the idea of her liking drinks with hot pepper in them and so forth. There, you know, this, this, this fiery element, which, ha- which has to do with very, very intense emotions. And in the case of Pele, they, uh, you know, I mean, they, they, can, they can be other kinds of emotions too, but a lot of times we see her acting when she's either angry or jealous. So, so we see this kind of um, creative power, but, but it's, it's one that has to be handled very carefully because it's very impulsive. Now, I shouldn't indicate, by the way, that the Greeks and Romans were somehow, um, you know, somehow not afraid of volcanoes or their effects. Obviously, remember what happened with uh, Vesuvius um, in... Um, Herculaneum and uh, in Pompeii and areas around there, but and and generally when these gods were worshipped, like Vulcan, for example, uh, the worship usually took place <clears throat> miles outside of the city um, because <clears throat> and in this way there's almost a connection between the fire gods and the dead because it's a force that you respect but you don't really want it in your community. You don't want the volcano spilling into your town. You're like, yeah, we, we respect that you've got a lot of power and that you bring us iron and stuff and those cool things and, you know, yay you, but could you please stay over there? Because like a lot of um, elemental deities and spirits, it's not that they're evil, but that they're the type of power that they have, if they're angered or they're upset, uh, could be very, very destructive. So, um, So there's a sense of... And so we see this in the Pele stories, too. There's a sense of banishing her or, or pushing her away. And it's usually the water goddess who's doing this. Um, this makes me think of the idea, this just jumps into my mind, but I'm thinking about um, Vedic astrology and the idea of Gandanta. When you have a fire sign and a water sign, they're very close to each other. So someone who's born, for example, um, I don't know, roughly between April 10th and 13th, 14th, um, is considered to be in Vedic astrology on the edge of Pisces and Aries. Mind you, Vedic astrology is different. The, the, the time when Aries starts is usually around April 14th. It's a different, different system. So, um, so somebody who was born, say, on April 13th would be Gandanta, because so, they would have that, com- that cusp of Pisces and Aries. And the water is said to temper <clears throat> excuse me, the effects of the fire. So, um, yeah, so there's this, this sort of uh, fire... Um, <clears throat> there's this idea of, you know, because water is what we use to extinguish fire. Of course, when you pour water on fire, you have a lot of steam, you have uh, things that, that, that rise up. Um, and sometimes when you initially pour water on fire, you can, you know, you can get scalding hot boiling water. You can get, you know, you, it, there can be an initial, um, 
that can be that can initially be a, another potentially disastrous burning a, event, uh, at least until the the cooling waters manage to overcome that. Um, there's another fire water episode in mythology that I can think of, and that's in the Iliad, when Achilles is joining the battle and he's slaying so many um, of the Trojans that he's actually choking up the river Xander or Scander, um, and the river god's getting pretty pissed off, so the river god is now starting to flood things. You know, starts to flood the plain and it is gonna it, and threatens to drown Achilles. Uh, and Hera gets very upset about this, so she sends Hephaestus, the fire god, the volcano god, to um, <clears throat> to set basically set the earth on fire. And so you've got this river that's on fire, it's choked with dead bodies. It's quite an image. I'm surprised no one's ever done a movie about this, or maybe they have, and I just for some reason I'm unaware of it. But um, that's that that would make quite a, a, a dramatic scene. But, but again, and so eventually the river god yields and says, okay, okay, you know, you don't have to, like, you know, burn me, you know, because that's the other thing, too. When there's too much heat combined with water, you dry the water up and the water disappears. Um, obviously, in a volcanic island situation like that of Hawaii, where you have the Pacific Ocean there and then you have all of these volcanic um, things that occur, it's actually pretty cool to see what happens when lava hits water and, and so forth. You, you have all the, you know, you create all these reefs and these other, um, these are the rock formations, these lava rock formations that are, that are really cool um, and that have their own ecology and their own ecosystem and, and such. So it's quite different um, in form there. But rather in this case, rather than seeing the uh, fire winning out, we see the water winning out. And perhaps that is the reason that, that things are kept in balance, that the islands are habitable because um, the fire of, uh, of the volcano can be kept in check. Okay. <clears throat> And, um, I mean, it can't, can't, be, can't be totally, can't be gotten rid of or extinguished, but it can be subdued. And, and there's, there's a psychological commentary there as well, because when we have very, very fiery energy that we have to repress, um, that can, a couple of different things can happen. Um, if there's no proper outlet for that fiery energy, it builds up inside of us, and then we have a kind of ex internal explosion. Psychologically, that might be connected with a severe depression, for example, because they often say anger turned inwards is is you know is at least one of a potential characteristic of depression. Okay, rather than turning it outwards, and um, you know, so there's this. Um, there's this idea of, of, of a suppression of force, but the other thing that can happen too <clears throat> is that um, this suppressed force can eventually, especially if it's something that's sort of buried under the ground, can eventually so much pressure can build up that it can it kind of can kind of blow up, okay, and um, you know, and destabilize what's thought to be stable above if the um, you know the fiery element underneath is not acknowledged. And again, in a psychological sense. If you if you're repressing those kinds of smoldering feelings into shadow, uh, that that can be problematic. That 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 can lead to compensations that can be somewhat dangerous. I'll give you an example. Um, I was talking with a friend. We were talking about um, men who tend to be very very passive in relationships. I, I'm, I'm way I think about my own father because my father my father's a great. It's not my and my father. I could see my father would have a temper every now and again especially when he was fixing things that, <clears throat> you know, and, and things were not going so well. Um, I swear that's where I've learned all my swear words from, and that, that's how I fix things going forward. You know, something doesn't work, I just, I, just, I just call it all kinds of horrible names, which is probably not the best thing to do. 
But I end up doing it because, you know, I learned that from dad. That's what, that's how he used to. Well, I kind of assumed after a while that if you swear at it enough, you'll be finally be able to fix it. But anyway, the so but then, but nonetheless, this he, he's a man who's very um <clears throat> whatever my mother wanted. I mean, he just yielded to everything. My mother is a um she's a very kind person, but she's also very formidable in a lot of ways. Um our birthdays are one day apart, and I only say, yeah, we we I, you know, whatever I criticize in her is probably a characteristic I have in myself. So, you know, I should be careful about how much I criticize her, but but nonetheless, she is she she can be very stubborn about the way she views certain things and um if she wants something a certain way, basically she tells my father that's the way it's going to be, and he just shrugs his shoulders. He's like, "All right," but my father's also very much a hardcore Republican, um, and he's never—he's extremely conservative, and nothing will change his views on that. I could sit down and have a discussion with him and say, "So, Dad, how do you feel about this about Social Security and Medicare?" And I'll say, "Do you want this?" Or, "Oh no, I want this. I want that." And then I go through and I said, "I realize everything that you think is actually part of the Democratic platform, and none of it is in the Republican platform." He goes, "Really?" And he still votes Republican because this is the way between that, between his swearing at things. And of course, he also used to be a very aggressive driver. Uh, he doesn't drive anymore. But um, when he was, he could be very, very aggressive when he drove. And um, I felt like this was the way in which um, whatever that passivity was, whatever resentment might have been from the fact that he had to felt like he had to kind of step back and he wasn't the dominant person in the household it kind of came out in these other ways, in these other um, ways that might <clears throat> not necessarily be violent, but they they express kind of a, um, you know, a hard guy. Like, he loved the action films and, you know, that whole idea of, yeah, America, we're going to go blow stuff up. I mean, he loved movies and stuff like that. I don't think he cares today. Um, but that was only his kind of thing. And, and when he's... Um, been in the hospital and such, and he's been on the influence of medications that affect his mind, he can get very nasty. So my point is just that, that all of that stuff is hidden away. It's been suppressed. It's been suppressed in the name of marital harmony or whatever. And because there's a cultural attitude or expectation about the roles of men and women in marriage, I think a lot of times men who kind of feel like they've been dominated by their spouses or by their significant others who happen to be female, there's sort of this... Um, unconscious almost um, resentment and almost, and I don't want to say authoritarianism, it could, it could manifest that way, but there's this almost unconscious sense of, um, you know, I'm angry at it and I want to blow it up. <laughs> okay. I don't know how else to put it. Um, so there's, there, you know, there's that, that way because, because men also in our society, um, I feel like that's changing now, but, but certainly it's been it's been the norm for many years that men are not supposed to express their feelings or are, are either ridiculed for doing so or called unmanly for doing so. So men end up with this kind of conundrum where they have they may have these kind of smoldering feelings, and if they're involved with a woman <clears throat> who is very um, who is not passive, um, as and, I, and I'm not suggesting women should be. Um, some women just are naturally, and many and some are not. Um, nobody should be subject to the abuse of anybody else, but. Um, but women who are not naturally passive, you know, it may breed this kind of unconscious resentment if you have a man who doesn't feel particularly solid and secure um, in his own feelings. Um, and that's why I say generally the way for men to do that is to be able to embrace their feminine side without being afraid of it or, you know, feeling ashamed of it or anything like that. If, if there's a way, however that wishes to express themselves or, you know... Um, and I have a number of, of thoughts about that, but I don't want to sidetrack too much into that. 
it is important with respect to the discussion of how the how the repressed fire element um, affects us in the psyche. So this is what I see. And, and, pay, and of course, that suppressed force here in this case is feminine. It's not masculine. Um, so yeah, the other thing I wanted to mention about fire and water is um, there was an article written by, I think his name was Avi Steinberg back in 2012. It was in the New Yorker, and it was after Hurricane Sandy had hit at the end of October that year. There was a lot of discussions of floods and flood mythology. And one of the things that came up um, in the midst of all this was the, <clears throat> he, you know, was this, you know, going back and looking at old flood mythologies and, and you know, what their political meaning might have been, what their psychological meaning might have been. But he may, he, there was a sentence in that article that I remember when he talks about, <clears throat> you know, sort of um, catastrophic events that are watery rather than fiery. And he said, fire purifies and water regresses. Okay. So with water, there's this fear of, quote unquote, returning to the mother in the sense of um, like becoming an infant again, starting all over. Um, for example, baptism is something that's supposed to give you a brand new life, make you a new person all over again. And that, that, that doesn't have to be a negative thing. Um, but it does tend to be regressive. It tends to, you know, to set things back. Whereas fire just completely annihilates it. And you have, you know, it's not, it's not that you're regressing back to an earlier form. You're literally starting all over again. Um, right? Things coming out of the ashes. Um, certainly in Hindu mythology, we see this in the idea of the cremation ground as being sort of the, um, the metaphor for liberation, you know, that, that, that complete purification and that burning up of things that are no longer necessary. So, um, so we have this battle between <clears throat> sort of the, I mean, but water can purify as well. Um, and it's, it's frequently used as a purification agent, particularly with just things like basic hygiene, you wash yourself, right? Or it said, you know, you need to drink, you know, clean water to clear your system out. There's, there's this idea of these, these kinds of, you know, the, the way that these cleansing elements um, interact with each other and the different, different things that they can do. Um, but like a lot of these um, elemental forces, they can, I mean, again, they're not, nothing, neither of these are, they're not, it's not about which one's a good god and which one's an evil god or goddess or anything like that. It's about how do these forces... Um, what do they represent in our psyche in particular? I mean, there is what it represents to the land in a very, actually very literal ecological sense. And then, and, and you know, perhaps as far as the Hawaiian people um, and their ancestors, you know, natives, as their, um, you know, as their, as their kind of ancestral legacy, which is also tied up with, um, you know, the, perhaps the, the, the landscape of the island but how that also ends up affecting the psyche, not only the psyche of people who are native to that area, which has its own very specific inflection, um, along with the, the way that um, we think about these elements in terms of how they, um, what they tend to represent for us uh, psychologically um, on a more collective scale. Okay. Um, okay, there was one other thing I wanted to talk about, and that will be it for this particular episode. I wanted to talk about the urban legends associated with Pele, okay? Um, Pele, um, <clears throat> it said that she actually warns the local people of impending eruptions. So she appears in the form of either a beautiful young woman or an elderly woman with white hair, sometimes accompanied by a small white dog, always dressed in a red mumu. Pele is said to walk along the roads 
um, <clears throat> near Kilauai, but will vanish if passersby stop to help her, similar to Resurrection Mary or the hit vanishing hitchhiker legend. The passerby is then obliged to warn others or suffer misfortune in the next eruption. Okay, so that's interesting. We see um, we see Pele as a kind of Resurrection Mary, um, although Resurrection Mary seems to be kind of a replaying of a uh, of a tragedy of a girl dying in an accident and then continually trying to make her way home. Um, in this case, though, Pele, she's actually more like a banshee figure in this. Uh, she is, um, she's dressed in red, the color of the Earth Mother. Uh, and the whiteness, whiteness is, again, whiteness is one of those colors. Now, this is, this is a Polynesian culture. Um, you know, they we're talking South Pacific. And I'm not gonna, I, I'm not sure what the, the meaning of white is uh, in that particular culture. We tend to think of black as the color of death. Um, however, in India, uh, <clears throat> the color of death is white. Um, I mean, it can represent purity, but, um, for example, widows always wear white saris because they, you know, they have, uh, once they have lost their husbands, um, they're, they, they symbolize um, death and loss. So what I'm not sure is if in this culture, um, I mean, it's not that Indian and Polynesian culture are any way, I'm saying that they're the same, but they're similarly, um, they're in similar parts, you know, globally, okay, they're, 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 they're closer to India and to places like that than they are, say, to, uh, to Europe. So, you know, you wonder if there's a, um, a connection there, you know, <clears throat> symbolically, at least in that idea. Um, not suggesting that they're the same, but there's, the, but they're, but, you know, it's not unheard of in that part of the world for whiteness to be associated with death. Okay, so <clears throat> in, either, in any case, I mean, when you tend to see, um, any of these kinds of figures. She's almost like a banshee figure, okay? She doesn't weep and wail, but she's like a banshee figure. She appears, and <clears throat> her appearance is an omen of disaster, just as it is actually even in European culture, usually with black dogs. Um, there's an association of those with, um, with death, which is why I wonder if the white dog can potentially associate death. And of course, if anybody's in the path of the lava flow, that can mean destruction and death. So... So the idea is there, there is that <clears throat> there's somebody who's given a warning, um, you know, to go back and say, yes, I've seen Pele. Um, <clears throat> if you're in the path of the volcano, you may want to get the hell out, <laughs> you know? Um, so that's, that's sort of an interesting um, way in which the goddess of the island is protective of the people who live there. Okay, like they're, you know, you know she, in, in spite of her capricious nature, she at least, you know, will, will forewarn people so that they personally are not harmed. Now, the other legend is one called Pele's Curse, and it says that the, um, her wrath will fall on anyone who takes any of the lava rocks away from Hawaii as a, you know, not away from the island as a souvenir. And this is not the only place where this has happened. There are many other national parks um, where there are really old artifacts or, you know, potentially, you know, old bones or, or different things that we hear about, uh, especially in the Southwest, Southwestern United States. There's one, I think, in New Mexico that I heard about recently. Um, and I can't, I'm not remembering the name of it off the top of my head, but, um, yeah, but there's this idea of cursed objects. You don't, you don't take something home from a sacred place, uh, and put it, you know, in your house just as, as a decoration. Um, it's not, it's considered to be, especially since the way the spirits of that place maybe still be very active, 
um, <clears throat> you're taking that away and putting it into um, uh, this different context. You know, there's, there's, it's that there's something attached to it. You should not, you should not be um, doing this. Now, some people say, of course, you know, of course, the more secular and cynical-minded will say, oh, well, this is just something the Park Service invented so people wouldn't walk away with the rocks. So therefore, it's like a psychological thing. Oh, I took it away and somebody told me there was a curse. And then bad things happened when I got home. Ooh, maybe I better return it, you know? So, so that, um, <clears throat> so that's the idea that, you know, people have to seek Pele's forgiveness for that. And so it's hard to know whether or not it was just one of those things started just to keep people from taking stuff, which they shouldn't do anyway. But I don't know. I always think um, in places like that, um, there's a very active, I guess we'll call it an animistic energy, for lack of a better phrasing, but that the energies there, um, the ancestral energies and the energies of, you know, the, the potency of the land, you know, most of the time, the way we go about life, we don't, we don't even notice, but it's still so very vibrant and potent in those areas, and um, you don't, you don't want to behave or do anything in a way that's disrespectful. You don't take things from sacred places any more than you'd walk into a church and, you know, say, walk up and steal one of the statues or, oh, I really like that cross. I'm going to take it home with me. You wouldn't, you know, I mean, I don't know. Maybe, maybe there's some people who would do that, but let's just say that that's not, that's not typically how you um, behave when you go into a house, any kind of sacred place or house of worship or whatever. And, you know, so therefore, even though these, this may not be a formal temple or, or, you know, in, in, you know, in terms of a structure, it's still something you should not take things from. Okay, well, that's it for me for now. Um, again, want to say thank you to all those who support me on Patreon. Um, I did do another special podcast for December, and there should be some other ones coming up. I'm going to try to do at least one a month there, um, <clears throat> plus some other giveaways and things and some regular updates. So please check out cathonia.net uh, and, um, and also patreon.com slash Cathonia if you'd like to support my work. Um, and of course, if you want to like, you know, like, subscribe on social media. Um, I'm also on, I'm on Cathonia on YouTube uh, and Cathonia Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It's two words on Facebook, one word on Instagram and Twitter. Um, thank you all again, um, and until the next episode.